30 years ago, an up-and-coming young hip-hop group released the follow-up to their successful debut album from the previous year. What at the time was a curious, interesting, jazz-inflected, lyrically progressive alternative to gangster rap ended up being undisputedly one of the 10 greatest, most important, most decade-defining albums of the 1990s. In the 30 years since its release, its influence and stature has grown exponentially, not just within hip-hop, but beyond. You have socially conscious, alternative-slash-progressive hip-hop greats, such as Nas, Talib Kweli, Most Def, Common, The Fugees, and Lauryn Hill, pre-egomaniacal Kanye West, and Kendrick Lamar. You have neo-soul to contemporary R&B soul and pop greats, such as Erica Badu, Maxwell, D'Angelo, Mary J. Blige, Pharrell Williams, Raphael Sadiq. All of them owe a massive debt to the enduring artistry and timeless greatness of this group and the masterpiece they unveiled to an unsuspecting public back in 1991. Not Public Enemy, not NWA, not Dr. Dre, not Biggie, not Tupac, not Jay-Z, not Eminem, not Kanye. This group gave the world the gift of the greatest hip-hop album ever made. Which group is it? Which album is it? Welcome to the 25th edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report and find out. Welcome to the 25th edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. This is Christopher O'Connor coming to you from suburban Houston. And with me, as always, is Arturo Andrade coming to you from Gwangju, South Korea. And we host the podcast made just for you. We don't do hot takes. We do honest takes. So then this belongs to you. Who are you? You are the rock geek, iconoclastic outsider looking for a safe haven in a world where rock and roll no longer predominates. Well, it sure as heck does here on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, where we not only celebrate the music, we live its majesty in full color and at full force. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before. And now you can be a part of our brand new private Facebook group, which we are calling the Curmudgeon uh, Rock Report's Curmudgeonly Community. Yep, uh, that, that is a mouthful, but it's pretty awesome. Uh, you can join us there and share thoughts, musings, and random excitement with your fellow travelers along the curmudgeonly path to rock and roll goodness. Arturo, what, what's the deal, yo? Well, <laughs> I like your hint uh, you just gave there <laughs> as to what we're going to talk about uh, in today's episode. But uh, yeah, everything's well here. Um, it's, it's, it's end of the year. It's Christmas time. We just got our first snow here in Guangzhou. Is there, there are two G's in Guangzhou. And yeah, of course, this time of the year, when it's the end of the year and the snow comes, it always gets me reflective. And we are doing nothing but reflecting today on 30 years ago, the release of the greatest hip hop album ever made. But first, we need to uh, put on our uh, futuristic shades. And we are now 
bursting and thrusting into the parallel universe. We swear this is not porn, but we are thrusting into uh, our parallel universe, Arturo. Where are uh, we going on the other side of the space-time continuum this week? We are going to a parallel universe where solo female indie rockers rule. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and if there were a better, a better world, these two that we're going to talk about would be absolute superstars, especially the second one, who you know, really is one of the best songwriters in the world. But anyway... Um, yes, solo female indie rockers. And I will start with a very young woman from the Netherlands. Her name is Pip Blom and her latest record, Welcome Break, which came out a, a month or two months ago. Um, yeah, I think it was two months ago. Yeah, it was, it was about then. Yeah, it's about then. And anyway, anyway, hailing from the Netherlands. Uh, she's made some small but strong waves in Europe. And the UK, more especially, with her brand of irresistibly catchy guitar pop that kind of harkens back to 1990s indie rock stalwarts, such as Liz Fair, Throwing Muses, Juliana Hatfield, and even more recent indie rock stars, such as Courtney Barnett. More on her later. <laughs> hmm. um, first, we have to explain the name Pip Blom. Okay. Yes, it is the young woman's name. But it's also the name of her band. Um, you can think of it kind of like Alice Cooper. <laughs> where, you have, where you have Alice Cooper, the guy. And then you have the Alice Cooper group. Or at least as they were known back in the early days. And yes, this is the only podcast, folks, where Pip Blom and Alice Cooper will ever be mentioned in the same sentence. Word. Uh, <laughs> um, starting in 2016, Blom released a series of terrific standalone singles. You can find them all on YouTube after looking the titles up on Discogs.com. That led to the 2019 release of her excellent debut album, Boat. Now, Boat had a quirky, angular, offbeat vibe combined with a nearly lo-fi production sound that lent it an urgency and an edge uh, befitting her 90s alt-rock influences without outright copying them. That's important. Um, It was easily one of the top 10 rock albums of that year, Everyone listening, you should check it out. Now, with more attention on her and legitimate anticipation for her new album, uh, she has tons of views on YouTube and Mojo Magazine recently did a feature on her. How does Blom confront the expectations? Simple. She goes big, bold, and bombastic. (laughs) Uh, Big sounding guitars prevail along with choruses that aspire to arena rock proportions and gargantuan hooks that sink in and just don't let go. Um, let's face it, rock music is a is nowadays a, a niche genre with very few artists and bands under the age of 40 who could play to more than 5,000 people. Yeah, um, pretty much. And, 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 she, and she's one of these who's never going to be an arena rocker. But there is something endearing about Blom not giving a shit. And and shooting for the stadium rock stars anyway. Um, It's as if she knows she was born 30 years too late for this music to have any kind of serious commercial impact. So fuck it. Just let loose, rock out. And if she picks up a few new fans like me along the way, then she's all the better for it. Uh, It's also clear, at least from the lyrics, that she's had some romantic relationship issues 
in the past couple of years since her debut. Uh, the song I Know I'm Not Easy to Like rocks mercilessly and defiantly even with a, a lyrical admission of blame that lacks any kind of self-pitying that an inferior artist would inject the song with. Um, you have the mid-tempo swing of different tune, probably the prettiest song on the album with the prettiest melody. It's really brutally honest in its admission of simply not wanting to change and willing to kill a relationship. Um, Faces, the song Faces, is the companion piece of the latter song. Yes, again, with a walloping arena rock chorus, where Blom takes the opposite tack and offers to go back to the start. Um, You Don't Want This, the album's opening track and opening single, sets the tone for the album as a scorching indie rock anthem about being sick of love and sick of yourself for falling in love. (laughs) Are you you listening, Matthew Sweet? Yes. (laughs) Um, While not as consistent as her debut album, the highs of Welcome Break are among the best songs Blom has ever written. Definitely in my top 20 albums of the year list. Yeah, I I need to spend more time with this record, honestly. But yeah, I think what you just said is is pretty right on. That there's a uh, she's playing for her imaginary friends, which yeah. I guess I guess are us. Yeah. And so you know, it's like, uh, and what I mean by that is there's a stadium. When I say us, it's the two of us and all of you listening. That uh, <laughs> picture us, uh, kind of uh, you know, filling Madison Square Garden. And she's singing to us as if she's, you know, like trying to amplify there. Yeah. But uh, there is, you know, there is a, uh, a craftsmanship uh, to her uh, stuff that is really striking. Uh, there's an anger, but also she's got the hooks. I mean, she's yeah. got the talent. And like you said, she's there's a fearlessness there and, and a bluntness and an honesty uh, which you know, some of which I think might actually be influenced by who I'm going to talk about shortly. Yeah. Uh, but in a in a less filtered, less sophisticated, more angry, uh, more visceral way, I think that might be fair uh, to say. Yeah. Uh, and I think that it's it's kind of funny you mentioned Alice Cooper that you know who knows maybe back in the '70s you know she would have she would have been more uh, more akin to what those guys in Detroit were doing. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, who knows? So, no, I'm 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 with you there. But like I said, I got to spend more time with this record. But on first listen, uh, I dig it, and I can see why you dig it because it's got your tastes uh, written yeah. all over it. Yeah, uh, you know. And uh, I will say this: uh, one of the things that I'm liking about this lost rock star generation, yeah, uh, as we have dubbed them in the past, yeah. is they like to make short records. Yes. Uh, they are not about 70 minute uh, sprawling opuses for the most part. For the I mean, most you know, part. You, yeah, you get your yeah. King Gizzard sometime that'll run a little long in the tooth. But uh, for the most part, you get these these folks, they're making 34 minute, 37 minute, 42 minute records. Yeah. And it harkens back to, you know, sort of the vinyl era when you only had a limited amount of space. And so they're kind of reinventing that and showing that even in the internet age, it could still be. <laughs> you know, well, and, I mean, yeah. it, it kind of makes sense though, because like younger generation of music fans, I mean, I don't want to poo poo too much, but yeah. uh, there's a there's, there's a bit of ADD in a lot of younger generation music fans, you know, so there's, there's a sense of don't bore us, get to the chorus, you know, yeah, um, well, hey, I like that, uh, but but at the same time, you have to differentiate between uh, these folks yeah. on the one extreme and the Doja Cats and the Little Nas X's on the other. Uh, yeah. both, of, both of whom I like, by the way, 
But remember, uh, they uh, got big vis-a-vis because they learned how to game uh, SoundCloud and TikTok, which basically means you have about 25 seconds to make or break yourself. Exactly. So yeah. that's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about album art, which is yeah, you know, that's true. That's you true. Know, you know, get in, be tight, do nine or ten songs, be good, get out. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that there's that spirit here, uh, which I guess is a good segue to yes. uh, who I'm talking about, and we've we've hinted at it about nine about nine times in three minutes. Uh, this is the new album by Courtney Barnett. Uh, if you Speaking of that lost star, rock star generation uh, episode that we did a few months back, uh, Ms. Barnett, uh, the Australian uh, genius, uh, she was number two uh, on that list, right behind your buddy there, rock and roll Jesus. Uh, Ty, Ty Siegel. Ty, yeah. Ty yeah. Siegel. Uh, so uh, Courtney Barnett is back. Uh, she has just released in the last couple of weeks her third uh, uh, solo record. Uh, this is excluding uh, the record uh, that she did uh, with uh, uh, Kurt Vile, uh, 2017's Flat of Sea Lice. But this is her third solo record, which she has called Things Take Time, uh, Take Time. Uh, and uh, it's a pretty spot on title uh, for this record uh, in a lot, a lot of ways. Uh, she's, you know, let's say when she first came to our attention in 2015, uh, she's a 28-year-old, uh, wise-ass slacker poet, uh, you know, definitely uh, an acolyte in her mind to Kurt Cobain and other uh, gnarly uh, rockers. And uh, she does this brilliant record called uh, Sometimes I Sit and Think and Sometimes I Just Sit, which while it's jokey on uh, multiple listens, grows poignant and actually pretty profound. Uh, and she's got that uh, guitar crunch. Well, here, you know, then in 2017, she releases an album called Tell Me How You Really Feel, where you get a sense she's starting to mature a little bit that, you know, she's also a craftsman and she's starting to kind of lean more on the craft, get more subtle, uh, get a little calmer, yet, you know, just as poignant and just as sort of uh, romantic uh, as she's apt to be. Well, now she's got this record uh, that she's done, and she's morphed from that 28-year-old slacker uh, into a 34-year-old uh, with uh, seven more years of perspective and experience under her belt. And it sure sounds like it. Uh, with this record, which is uh, 10 songs, about 34 uh, minutes, uh, there's a real gentleness, albeit a gnarly gentleness, uh, to this record that perhaps befits the uh, COVID uh, isolation and desolation and loneliness uh, that provided the context for it, and which ultimately emerge as the album's main themes. Uh, you know, she did this under, uh, and it took she took about a year to do it, but it was done under COVID lockdown. It's uh, you know, it's kind of self-produced uh, down there, and uh, she in a lot of ways, she might as well be singing these songs. I get this picture of her sitting on her back porch uh, in a classic barking at the moon uh, posture, like kind of, like kind of like huddled down where, you know, she's lamenting, but she's also remaining hopeful uh, all throughout uh, the record. Um, And so when it opens uh, the, the album openers, it's called Ray street and it has this really laid back vibe. 
uh, that makes me think that Kurt Vile had a really strong influence on her. <laughs> when yeah, they made yeah. a lot of sea lice because it sure. would not be out of place on his masterpiece bottle it in yeah uh, from 2018 right uh, and so in a lot of ways uh this song suggests and you get some of this throughout the record too what that you get the sense that she's slowing down and stretching out as she ages uh which sounds like a really good descript descriptor for the uh, growing up process that i have endured over the yeah. past 25 years Although, you know, you know me, it's been really slow and really stretched out. The fact that I got married when I was 45, I mean, there you go. Uh, but enough about me. Uh, with this record, you know, I said, you know, the guitar is still there, uh, but it's just subtler. Uh, it's more echoey. It's more, generally, it's more in service of the melody and strong structure. You know, it ain't just riffs now. Um, I will say this, like I said, so it gets, it starts off sort of gentle and, uh, you know, sort of wearing the romance on its sleeve. But as it goes along, it starts to get into that more sort of Courtney Barnett uh, vibe and that pocket that only she can get into Yeah. in terms of sound and, and lyric and uh, that sort of uh, clever, but still poignant emotion. I mean, the highlights are all in a row for me, uh, starting with the fifth track, Turning Green. Uh, where it's got this simple little bass line and swinging beat. And obviously there's hopeless romanticism in the lyrics. It's very, uh, you know, it's very kind of, uh, I miss you and I wish you were here and just really kind of sweet. But then it really has this exquisitely ringing siren of a guitar solo for a coda. I mean, this girl can play. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. She, she, she's a kick-ass yeah. guitar player. Yeah. She's, she's, she's fantastic. And so that kind of sneaks in there. It's like the first time in the record that it really, you know, you think it's going to be a straight, you know, sort of uh, almost adult contemporary uh, type of vibe. And then all of a sudden that returns. Uh, the next song on it is called take it day by day, which is a rocking little ditty uh, about the uh, all too relevant, uh, COVID era subject of checking in on a friend to make sure that that friend won't kill themselves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, all too relevant. I mean, I've got friends that have been there. I, I haven't been there, came close, but I haven't been there. Um, and then from there you get uh, what I think is the best song on the record, which is if I don't hear from you tonight, uh, which, you know, is just this wonderful power pop uh, love song, uh, equal parts, doughy eyedness and desperation. Uh, with some really cute, but, uh, but again, kind of, you know, profound lyrics. She's got one that says, if loving you is a crime, then give me those front page headlines. You know, it's yeah. almost kind of like, you know, Ray Davies kind of winky winky uh, right. kind of stuff, but it's good. And then uh, the last uh, little highlight I'll mention is the song Splendor, which is this little, uh, it's a two minute bluesy rocker, but it's about grieving a lost relationship. Uh, very simple uh, lyric, but it really makes its point. Uh, uh, she she can be a wise ass, but she feels, and I think that she feels more on this record than she ever has. Um, and you know, it it comes across and very strong. So I would say, you know, even though it's less wordy maybe and less jokey, uh, she still has a lot to say. I think there's just an economy to it now. Yeah, uh, that propels her more into the modern pantheon of rock and roll greatness. Uh, this is a record I'll be revisiting quite a bit, I think. Uh, so what do you think? No, I, I love it. I mean, I'm, I'm, like, I'm a huge Courtney fan. Um, 
listen, I, I, I'll say this. I know it, it, it's time to make an exaggerated statement by me. <laughs> yes. But uh, I, I think she's Australia's greatest living songwriter. And yes, yeah. I know I know Nick Cave is still alive. <laughs> yeah. No, she's she she has exceeded uh, she has exceeded Nick Cave. I think yeah. she's one of the best lyricists on the planet. Yeah, I agree know. too. And, yeah. and on this album, lyrically, the other the other big theme I see on this record is stasis. Yeah, you know, be, being stuck and not being able to go anywhere. I mean, yeah. I don't I don't know if she she was she was together. She was in a relationship with someone for a while. I wonder if that relationship is over because she drops hints on it. Of like yeah. missing the other person, wishing you were here and not yeah. having you anymore and things like that. Yeah, I mean, basically, Splendor is the uh, is the lament of the fresh breakup, you know? Yeah, you that's know? what and it seems like. Yeah, you know, goodbye, I wish you were here, but I know you're gone. And it's kind of like coming to terms uh, with that. But like you said, it's, uh, stasis, as in we were on lockdown during COVID. And yeah. I mean, look, I mean, who hasn't experienced some kind of stasis? Uh, over the especially in America, and that is a segue. We're leaving the parallel universe, and now, uh, folks, let us describe to you and let us launch into our deep, deep, deep discussion and reverence for the greatest hip hop album ever made. Arturo, uh, open the door and tell us what we are talking about. Yeah, for those of you who did not get the hint that I dropped in the teaser to this episode and some of the small little things Chris has uh, uh, blurted out, the album we're talking about it came out 30 years ago. This year is the 30th anniversary of that album that we think is the greatest hip-hop album ever made. A Tribe Called Quest released its second album, The Low End Theory, on September 24th, 1991. Now, if you're good with dates, you would know Nirvana's Nevermind was also released that day. Uh, 30 years later, it's pretty inarguable, inarguable that both albums proved revolutionary. Um, yes, folks, we are claiming A Tribe Called Quest, The Low End Theory, is the greatest hip-hop album ever made. Now, naturally, it's been a fertile season for uh, reverence, for personal recollections of and analysis as to why the low-end theory still matters. Um, these best are, uh, the, the best of these are, uh, is from writer Lex Power, who published an article uh, in The Ringer, uh, Bill Simmons' website, uh, about the greatness of the low-end theory and all that. However, all of these think pieces and the hot takes and the attempts at deep dive have stopped short of a certain superlative. So that's where we fill the gap. A Tribe Called Quest, The Low End Theory, uh, according to these curmudgeons, is the greatest hip-hop album ever made, period. And that's certainly different from calling it the most important, although the album certainly belongs in that conversation. No, we are taking the additional step here. And what we're saying is that no hip-hop album is greater. Why? Well, that's what the rest of this episode will be about. Maybe it's not something we can adequately capture in the span of 70 minutes or so, but we will drill down in ways that uh, you may expect. Now, here's an initial volume. The album's most famous stanza is its first, the opening lyrics to the first track, Excursions, where Q-Tip uh, uh, kicks it off. Back in the days when I was a teenager, before I had status, before I had a pager, this is 1991, <laughs> you could find the abstract listening to hip hop 
my pops used to say it reminded him of bebop i said well daddy don't you know that things go in cycles the way that bobby brown is just amping like michael it's all expected things are for the looking if you got the money quest is for the booking now there, there's a whole lot going on in those three little couplets and uh there's also some misdirection at play um, the bebop references is a wise one, and so is Q-Tip's invocation of the, the cyclical nature of uh, popular tastes, if you will. But then but th- there's a neat trick there as well. Tip equates his group with Bobby Brown, not Michael Jackson. <laughs> They're just doing their thing just as all their contemporaries are doing theirs. And all the while, though, you just cannot escape the big, fat, ridiculous bass sample driving the song. Uh, A Tribe Called Quest demonstrates that the hip-hop idiom is remarkably permeable, and Q-Tip and Ali Shaheed Mohammed, basically the DJ of the group, proceed to fill in the spaces better than anyone ever has, then or since. It all comes down to the bass, the beat, the courage to experiment, and the idiosyncrasies of Q-Tip and Fife Dog as rappers. Uh, We'll expand on that, on all of that, from here. Um, how did the low end theory come to be? What makes it the greatest in our estimation? Why this album and not other commonly cited contenders? Why is calling this thing jazz rap actually kind of insulting? And what exactly makes this album so damn exciting and timeless? Folks, let your dearly beloved curmudgeons lead the way and leave no doubt that the low end theory is definitively the greatest hip hop album ever made. The curmudgeons would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge all of the great musicians and artists who left the earth during 2021. Here is a roll call recited with fondness. Bunny Whaler, Michael Nudsmith, Shock G, Phil Spector, Charlie Watts, DMX, Mary Wilson, Biz Marquis, Don Everly, Jim Steinman, Lee Scratch Perry, and Jimmy Rogers. We try to honor such legends as these every time we hit the record button on the Curmudgeon Rock Report. May we never fail them. All right, so let us set the stage. And uh, we should really start setting the stage um, with what kind of inspired uh, us, or one of the main inspirations for us to do this episode in the first place. Uh, This year also marks the 10th anniversary of the documentary uh, that came out 10 years ago, uh, directed by actor, comedian, and uh, podcast host, uh, it happens to be, Michael Rappaport. The name of the movie is Beats, Rhymes, and Life, The Travels of a Tribe Called Quest. And it really goes into the history of the group from the beginning, um, during their peak years, the, the turbulent relationships that group had within, uh, amongst each other, um, their breakup, their reunion tours and shows, the breakup again because Five Dog and Q-Tip just really were really not getting along, getting along with each other in the late noughties. So it's a it's a documentary that I highly recommend anyone who's into music documentaries, especially hip hop documentaries, for a group that's this important. Um, you know, it really is like uh, you know these audacious kids from Queensbridge and how they embraced hip hop and found their way to the opportunity to make these great albums, the low end theory being the, 
the you know the masterpiece of or, or one of them or the, the greatest masterpiece of the of the masterpieces they made. Um, some of the things that I got from the documentary that I think is important to note. Um, okay, yes, you had the Jungle Brothers in the 1980s, but a tribe called Quest really were the birth of socially conscious hip hop and black conscious hip hop on a mainstream level. No one had brought it to the mainstream like they did. Yeah, not, um, not, not like they did. Uh, and, I mean, and that's a good jump off point because, you know, I mean, Jonathan Davis, uh, uh, now known as Kamal uh, Ibn John Farid, uh, otherwise known as Q-Tip, uh, is one of the, uh, the great uh, geniuses uh, of, of hip hop. Uh, you know, his story is, uh, you know, he's born 1970, uh, which makes him a little bit younger than a lot of the other pioneers and uh, yeah. arguably one of the leaders, if not the leader of, of uh, rocks or of rap's uh, second uh, generation. So, uh, yeah, he grows he grows up out there in, in Queens in the Queen, you know, Queenbridge, uh, uh, Queensbridge projects. Uh, however, is fortunate enough to uh, attend high school and an arts focused high school in uh, in uh, Manhattan, uh, that's where he meets, uh, Ali Shaheed Muhammad and a couple of guys from the jungle brothers. And that's sort of the beginning of what was known as the native tongues, uh, collective, uh, De La Soul and Queen Latifah were offshoots, uh, of that, uh, eventually. Uh, and the, the whole idea was all of these contemporaries, uh, that were really, that were teenagers when they started and, you know, they had this ambition, they had the, these ideas, um, and, uh, they dug in the crates harder than, than anybody, uh, ever had. Uh, they had, uh, a natural, uh, sense of rhythm, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, their understanding of, of, of the beats and the musicality of hip hop, uh, uh, you know, very, very, uh, idiosyncratic, uh, uh Q-tip in that movie, uh, he says, uh, he, disavows this idea that he's the driving force or that he's the resident genius. Uh, he's, he at one point says basically something like, I ain't no fucking Ginzu knife. Uh, <laughs> you know, and you know, that's not, but dude, he, he, he was. Uh, and so it, it, it sort of comes from him. Uh, and, you know, Ali Muhammad was more of a DJ, but was sort of a, um, uh, just as ambitious, uh, in terms of, uh, experimentation of, of, of making things fun, of, of finding uh, the music and finding uh, their own uh, their own voice. And so originally it's four guys. It's Q-Tip, it's Ali Shaheed Mohammed, it's uh, Jerobi White, who is a real nut. Uh, he's not much of a rapper. Uh, he's kind of a dancer. He's, he's kind of like, you know, N uh, Nastastovich from, uh, <laughs> from, from Pavement. He's just kind of like yeah. the... Uh, Bob Nastanovich, like, you mean? Nastanovich, yes. Yeah. Uh, so he's kind of like the uh, the spiritual guy, you know, kind of the spiritual leader uh, of, of the group. And then there's Fife Dog, uh, who's a fascinating character in, in hip hop. He uh, He's also a Queens kid, but he is f a five foot tall diabetic. Uh, and so he's, yeah. he's this little guy, but he's definitely more earthbound uh, than, uh, than Q-Tip. You know, Q-Tip was like this, um, it was like the Jimi Hendrix of, of hip hop. There was something there in terms of the way he thought and the way that the lyrics rolled off his tongue uh, that was just 
wholly unique, uh, idiosyncratic as hell. Uh, and, but also had some things to say, you know, he did a lot of free association. And, uh, so like they, they meet here in school, they, they released their first record, uh, people's instinctive travels, uh, in 1989. Great, great fucking album. Yeah. It's a, a very strong record. Uh, I've always loved, can I kick it? Which is, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's deceptive because when it comes on one of my mixes on Spotify, I immediately think it's uh, Walk on a Wild Side yeah, uh, because that's kind of how they start it. And then it turns into this kind of like woozy, psychedelic, kind of like ridiculous, uh, funny, uh, yeah. you know, sort of uh, uh, like kind of sexual innuendo uh, song. So that's how they get their start. They do this record, but it's kind of it's a little bit hazy, a little bit lazy. And it's obviously the work of. 18 and you know, bright 18 and 19 year old kids, but it sounds like they're sort of unpolished diamonds and their first time uh, in the studio. And speaking of that album, you know, another thing the documentary points out um, in connection also to them, like being the birth of that, you know, socially conscious, black conscious, Afro-American conscious hip hop. But they also were the first hip hop group to bring like a multi-genre sophistication to hip hop. Sure they hadn't seen before obviously the jazz stuff but uh they were quite open in the funk as well i mean the funk funk has always been a part of hip-hop's dna yeah, but, but, the, but, but a tribe called quest celebrated those influences yeah you know? but but they're they're interesting because it's not only jazz but it's jazz fusion uh yeah it's, it's bebop it's uh, kind of uh that um like muso funk not like uh yeah, do they use a little bit of James Brown and Funkadelic uh, in in their uh, uh, sampling vocabulary? Yes, but a lot of it is that sort of muso, uh, off the beaten path, the kind of under the radar, yeah, uh, you know, funk almost experimental, like right. this kind of stuff. It's it's like it's like black, uh, like noodling. <laughs> yeah, is a, is a lot of their source material and kind kind of lends itself. Not necessarily a psychedelic vibe, but just sort of like weird, exciting jukebox feel. Sure. And uh, they also, uh, and we'll get into this, obviously, when we talk about the low end, their approach to sampling uh, was absolutely revolutionary and kind of lays the groundwork for everything that's come since. Yeah. In terms of how... um, a little bit different. We'll get into this, but you know, a lot of people say, well, wasn't that the bomb squad? Well, yeah, sure. But the bomb squad was doing it in the vise of, of the guys of punk rock. Uh, yeah. whereas these guys were just doing it as sort of, uh, musical innovators and producers. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, their ambition was to produce, uh, good music given the, uh, the, the technology they had at the time. Uh, one, one thing to point out, uh, and this also sets the stage for the low end theory too. Uh, they had probably the most tumultuous relationship with the music business. Yeah. Uh, or at least on record. Uh, of, of right. any, they, they were never happy with Jive Records. Uh, their original management, well, they shared it with uh, the Jungle Brothers. There was a big falling out there, lawsuits and lots of back and forth. And uh movie gets into this too. And not only that, but the royalties they were getting from Jive, they were getting cheated. Uh, that's one of the reasons that they broke up is they weren't making enough money. Right. And not only, and not only that, but uh, one of the big sources of tension between uh, uh, 
Fife and, and Q-Tip, not only, you know, Fife's resentment over not being featured enough, yeah. uh, but also the money. Sure. That's always at the heart of groups breaking up or having strife. It's usually the yeah. money. <laughs> but but it, it goes further with these guys, that their initial experiences and their desire to uh, make it in the business and their frustrations really kind of define, there's a lyrical theme that goes through the low end theory. So it's not just the, you know, connecting the past, present and future of black music and black culture, which is a big, you know, obviously a, a, a thread that runs through it, but it's also this dissatisfaction with uh, concert promoters, uh, record label people, uh, the middlemen, the managers and the people that control the money. Uh, that's like about a third of the record, <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, you know, like very explicitly, uh, too. And so coming into this, we get into the low end theory. Now Q-tip has done interviews over the years, um, that this idea of the low end theory, uh, there's, re it's really kind of a double, uh, resource, uh, or a, a sourced and inspired idea. There's obviously the base which, you know, there's the, obviously the low end and this right. idea that, that hip hop, uh, you know, really finds itself, uh, you know, it, 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 there's that space between the beats, you know, there, it, originally it was the drum beats and basic samples, but there's all that space that kind of connotes a low end. Well, here we're filling in the low end and we're making the low end the star. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing is just, you know, black people in general are, are you know, they, they, they're coming in to society, whether it's uh, trying to compete in education or music business or in life in general from the low end of the socioeconomic totem pole. Yeah. And yeah. so this is the idea that this is an album for black people, about black people, uh, by black people uh, coming in, trying to get theirs uh, by uh, redefining uh, the game, which they did and, wonderfully. And, and and also, we got to realize in 1991, um, hip-hop was getting really, really popular, or was already really popular, but the dominant style of hip-hop at this time was gangster rap, which yeah. we will talk, we'll talk about that much later in this, record, in, this, in this episode. But A Tribe Called Quest, they were the 180-degree opposite antithesis you know, yeah. of gangster rap, and they put it in your face. We are not NWA. We are not, you know, those yeah. guys. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. You know, we, we are explorers along, you know, black culture and the positive uh, parts of, of, of black culture, the more intellectual parts, yeah. which is, which, by the way, is ironic because one of uh, Q-Tip's stated inspirations uh, was straight out of Compton. <laughs> and, you know, because he, uh, he saw that, you know, the base is not that strong. Like I said, you remember how I just said that yeah. uh, there was a lot of connotation that the base could be there. Well, Dre's productions were so drum heavy and mm -hmm. so like basically just spaced out and slamming that yeah. the bass was connoted. And yeah, and there's a couple of great bass lines on that, like, you know, straight out of Compton, the song uh, on all of that. But the bass is not prevalent. And so the idea is that I'm inspired by that low end. I really want to make a low end record. On the next episode, Chris and I will end a series that was truly a labor of love for us. Prince versus Michael Jackson, Chapter 5, is the final and saddest entry in this 
award-winning, critically praised series. Both superstars' health starts to fail them due to increased and often secretive drug habits, and their attempts at commercial renaissances produce mixed results at best. Michael becomes a pop cultural icon who is increasingly irrelevant, while Prince seems oddly at peace with his elder statesman status and releases a couple of great underrated albums. The curtain comes down on the twin male towers of 1980s pop music brilliance. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. All right, so our claim to the low-end theory being the greatest hip-hop album ever made will basically be formulated in the context of eight points. We have eight points, right? And we're going to mention these points and we're going to fill them out. The first point, and we'll do this as quickly as possible. We don't want to spend too much time here. And that's eliminating the frequently evoked contenders for greatest hip hop album ever, hip hop album ever made. These albums are Raising Hell by Run DMC, 1987. Paid in Full, Eric B. and Rakim, 1987. N.W.A. Straight Outta Compton, 1988. Public Enemy, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold This Back, 1988. Dr. Dre's The Chronic, 1992. The Wu-Tang Clan, Enter the Wu-Tang, 1993. Nas, Illmatic, 1994. Uh, The Notorious B.I.G., Ready to Die, 1994. Lauryn Hill, The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill, 1998. Kanye West, My Beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, 2000, no, 2010, 2010. And of course, more recently, generally, relatively recently, Kendrick Lamar to Pimp a Butterfly 2015. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much the list. And uh, so why are we choosing it over uh, all all of those? Uh, Well, I mean, we can make comments about a few few of these. Uh, One, uh, it's not disturbing, whether deliberately or or otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you know, ready to die. Obvious uh, to me is a close, is a relatively close second. Uh, the problem with that, though, it is a disturbing uh, record. There's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of horror, like kind of uh, internal strife going on in that record. That, and not only that, but there's a there's a misogyny and there's a uh, sure a real darkness and a real and a realness to it that, while I admire it, is hard to listen to. Uh, you know, I I, 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 I scratch out the chronic because I think that's the most overrated hip hop album ever made. <laughs> um, yeah. well, that's, that that's Lauren Hill's record. Um, Lauren Hill. I mean, I like Lauren Hill's record. I think it's awesome. And obviously as a, as a statement by a female rapper, it's kind of like, you know, the Joni Mitchell statement of hip hop, but yeah. it's, it's overrated. And I will say this. I think that miseducation of Lauren Hill and, uh, my beautiful dark twisted fantasy, might not exist if it wasn't for the low-end theory. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I totally yeah, agree. Yeah, there, there's yeah. a lot. I mean, Kanye uh, has even said that the first record he ever bought was the low-end theory. And yeah. so, uh, so a lot of what he does is taking that uh, uh, ambition and that mission to fill the spaces and doing it in his own creative way. So in, in other words, it's kind of a continuation of, of what uh, Tribe did. Uh, so, you know, Raising Hell uh, proved that uh, hip hop could be an album uh, right. art form, 
but the technology wasn't there at the time. It was that very spare Rick Rubin, Jam Master J, uh, drum machines and rudimentary samples. And and as, and, 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 and as rappers, those guys couldn't compare to Q-Tip or Fife. <laughs> yeah, but they but but they had a thing. They had a style that, that's incredible. I mean, in terms of just a pop thing, they were very clever. Uh, yeah. But it's not quite there. Uh, you know, Enter Enter the Woo is just a weird record. Uh, yeah. it, it's fantastic, but it's, it's a really, really weird record. I think that to pimp a butterfly is, is kind of a hybrid of, of several, uh, things. Sure. And, and yeah, and look, Kendrick is very gifted, uh, as a, yeah. as a lyricist. Uh, I just don't think the production is quite there. I think that, uh, I think to pimp a butterfly's, uh, MO is him. And the words and the personality and uh, his his political outlook and just sort of, you know, championing the, the modern day struggles of, yeah. of uh, black Americans, yeah. uh, you know, I, I happen to think to pimp a butterfly is the best album of the decade. Um, I, I've really grown to love this record, that record in particular. I think it is a masterpiece, but no, it is not better than A Tribe Called Quest, The Low End Theory. Yeah. No, 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 the- no. Yes, and then there are a lot of people that would think that uh, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back uh, is the greatest. Uh, that, but that, that, that's a tough challenger right there. Yeah, that is a tough challenger, but I would make a, a, a claim that that's more of a rock record, more of a punk record, uh, yeah. that there's a musicality to it. But it's it's so experimental and so whacked out that those guys just had their own thing. Uh, and when uh, the artists and the music business caught up to the idea that they could make a whole bunch of money by getting in on the sample game. Yeah. Uh, that pretty much ruined the bomb squad, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you know, from there. And so, yes, there's a lot of creative sampling there, but it, it goes towards a collage that is more about the rock and the high end than yeah. it is about the low end. Right, uh, and right. then obviously the musicality. I mean, the main thing there is the interplay between Chuck D and Flavor Flav, which yeah. you know uh, never imitated, never duplicated. Uh, you 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 can't get any more better with the hype man thing. But sure. again, I just think it it's um, it's more of a uh, again it's more of a clever record and it's more of a uh, sound collage uh, uh, record. Uh, than this one, I think it there. The end was the noise, not yeah. the you know not not the finished product. It, it was not a uh, as deliberate of a paradigm shifter as right. as but don't, but don't 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 disqualify Chuck Chuck D's lyrics though because the, the, yeah his his political polemic on it takes a nation and the the one after that which I actually like more. I'm more of a fan of Fear of a Black Planet myself, just me personally. Yeah. But uh, but Ch- Ch- Chuck D's polemic, uh, polemic is what like defined a, a generation oh, yeah. of, of young African Americans growing up oh, at that time. Oh yeah, no no doubt. He's one of the great lyricists of all time. I mean, don't believe the hype as probably the greatest lyric uh, of all time. I I think. But you know, like I said, you know those. I would say on that list, Ready to Die and It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back are probably the closest contenders uh, yeah. for the great. For, yeah. for the greatest title, but they just don't have the, uh, they don't have the confidence. They don't have the, uh, the musical, uh, depth. Uh, they don't have the, um, what would you say? Kind of the unification, like the unity, the, you know, every, everything that just ties, it's not as tied together. 
yes. on that. And I mean, I, one thing about low-end theory, at first listen, if you've never heard it before, you would think, like, oh, everything kind of sounds the same, but it really doesn't. Every yeah. single beat and every single bass line, everything is distinctive. And this is what I think eliminates Illmatic from this, because I love, I love Nas. And I think yeah. Illmatic's one of the greatest hip-hop records ever made. But very that out. That album is very same sounding. The beats do kind of get to sound the same after a while. And what disqualifies the miseducation of Lauren Hill for me is that toward the end of that record, her lyrics get a little, you know, a little too uh, whiny and, and a little too a uh, uh, greeting card self help lyrically. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, pretty yeah. much. It, yeah, it kind of peters out. It becomes more of an R and B record as it goes along yeah. too. It, right. it, it peters out as hip hop. Uh, so yeah. yeah, no, there's there's a lot uh, there. And, and so like, to me, I think that, uh, the line theory is just, it's compact, it's focused, it's varied, and it's just nonstop thrilling. And yes. the other thing that needs to be said is that a lot of these records, they fall into skits, they fall into long conversation rambles, you know, kind of defenses of themselves, uh, a little too much, uh, goofiness. Or uh, a little too much, uh, you know, like all hip hop records, they had that sort of skits or they had those, sort yeah. of, you know, jump offs. None of that on a low end theory. Yeah, it's very, it's very, it's very to the bone. It's like, the, yeah, all the, all the fat has been cut out. Yeah, no, not a single wasted note, not a single wasted uh, word. Uh, and so I think that makes the difference. Yes. Okay. So we've eliminated the other contenders, even though those are much beloved albums. Now, point number two. Uh, why we think it's the greatest album ever. It is the most important line of demarcation between what is known as old school and what is known as new school. Yeah, absolutely. And they even talk about this on, on the record, that this idea of, uh, you know, in those uh, lyrics that we cited from Excursion, where they kind of get into that, uh, this idea that, you know, we're we're taking this to uh, to other regions and we're taking this we're wanting to take this further. And I think it had to do with uh, the sampling. It had to do with the, uh, the extension of the idioms, which we'll get into in the next point. But when I think when you think of the old school and the new school, 1991 is where it really breaks. And so, you know, you had them, uh, you had Cypress Hill, stay tuned. Uh, you, had Bla- uh, you had Black Sheep, uh, you had several other uh, groups that kind of broke out 91, 92, 93, about there, like the far side is one of these, but no one broke it harder. No one broke it better. And no one broke it more importantly than, than tribe uh, in terms. And, 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 yeah. and no one got referenced. No one got referenced more as an influence from that period than tribe. Oh no, no. <laughs> a, yeah, absolutely. Look old school. You know, we think of, we think of the drum machines. We think of the uh, the rudimentary samples. You know the Rick Rubin guitar lines, or we think you know of the sort of uh, more again sort of uh, political or angry kind of. It was more angry yeah. as opposed to uh, poli- you know the sort of uh, uh, layered argument kind of style that the uh, that the rappers from uh, uh, Q Tip on. Uh, brought and so it really became uh, almost akin. And you got to remember, new J- new jack swing is happening around this time too. So there's this idea of taking hip hop as this sort of spare art form uh, that's called together from uh, a lot of different pieces. 
and putting it together and making and finding the music of it. And boy, did uh, Tribe find the music on this record, which is why I think it's so revered. Right. And and that kind of leads into the third point. The second point and third point are quite connected. Uh, Third point, meaning that this album basically redefined the idiom of hip hop, not once, not twice, but three times. You know, you have a all the jazz sampling and, 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 and the spirit of the last poets from the late 60s, early 70s. The bass line is the driver of the music and the idea that beats can have texture. That had never happened before in hip-hop. The idea of beats having texture, that there's subtlety within the beats. And that's what makes the beats uh, on this album, is what makes each song distinctive it's not monotonous it's not same sounding because each song each baseline each drum fill they all have their own little unique uh, uh character to them when you listen yeah. to this out al- when you when you listen to this album enough that you know really comes through um midnight yeah. marauders it, midnight marauders is the album that came after this one it's a great album and some would say it's better produced in the technical conventional sense but dude, but no other hip hop album after Low End Theory sounds like the fucking Low End Theory, or 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 even drop the bomb as hard as Low End Theory did. Yeah, and and let, let let us expand on that. I think that with this record, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously sampling, uh, was a thing. You you try to outdo each other with samples or with the little bits that you would have, but. Digging in the crates became not just uh, not just the thing to do, but it became an art form and it became a competition. It was partially because of this record. Um, and when I say we read redefining the idiom, we're bringing in jazz. Yes. Uh, and Gangstar was doing that at the same time. And sure. Argu- arguably a little bit more sort of above board and kind of the stuff maybe folks knew. Uh Q-Tip was finding stuff uh, that was just uh, really obscure and really uh, it comes a lot of it comes from the 70s and a lot of it comes from these fusion records that were almost sort of um, they were kind of funky. They were kind of jazzy, you know, bass and horn and all this stuff going on and and drums, drums especially um, on these. And he's taking all these bits and pieces from a lot of disparate sources, which we will actually catalog all of those samples here uh, a little bit later uh, in the episode. Uh, And so what you get from there is, yes, you do get a jazz feel. He does cop to uh, comparing what he's doing in a hip hop sense to what the jazz guys were doing. That's all basically what excursions is about uh, versus from the abstract uh, gets into that uh, uh, quite a bit as well. But you also have the bass, like we said, explicitly, now the bass is there. Uh, you get all of these upright double bass samples. Uh, you know, Ron Carter actually comes in and plays live on versus yeah. from the abstract, which you know it's famous for. And just to clear it up for folks, uh, he's only on to one song. <laughs> he's not yeah. all over the record. Uh, that's how that's how smart that they were able to sample uh, these things uh, uh, with. So it's it's all that those big fat ass bass lines, uh, you know, bugging out. Uh, think about that one. Uh, think about rap promoter. 
you know, and then later on in the record, Sky Pager, which might be the most outdated song on it, but has one of the best beats on the whole damn thing. Yeah. Uh, just awesome little uh, uh, double bass uh, sample going on there. Uh, and then the, the third one, like Arturo said, texture, uh, that you have a lot of space in between those beats. Uh, but also you have those beats. And so one of the things that Q-Tip is famous for is in sampling these, these drum beats, he not only lays them down once, he lays them down twice and in sometimes three different tracks. And so what you yeah. do is you get this deepening uh, of those beats. You get this, you know, kind of stretching out or echoing or hitting even harder. And so he's layering the drum beats, which... I don't know if anybody had done that up to that point. Uh, he's also, you know, so obviously, like I said, there's the bass, but there's all these, these little vocal snippets, like from the last poet say, or, uh, you know, a few other things. He's taking like little guitar licks, that little guitar lick from rap promoter. He's taking all of these things and he's, he's filling in. And, and that's the thing. It, it, this album is called minimal. But boy, is there a lot of shit. <laughs> yeah, I know. In, in all those airy spaces. And to the point where even a couple of them have like what might as well just be samples of wind going through, you know, going through the songs like bugging out is like that. Uh, I think there's a little bit of that going on in Check the Rhyme, where if you listen to it on headphones, you can hear like a wind going through it. Yeah. And so uh, I saw an interview with Bob Power, who is a veteran engineer who actually engineered this record. Uh, talking about what they were doing and the idea of uh, back then you had some limitations, you know, you had only, I think like eight tracks or you had a certain number of tracks to work with and it's not like you could uh, play it all together. So you had to put a piece here in this track and a piece here in this track and a piece over here. And so you really didn't under know what it was going to sound like until you played it all back and started tweaking it. Uh and so they're doing this all in their heads uh, as they're going along, too. So they're building in this texture and they're coming up with this idea of going as deep as they could and filling in those spaces as musically and as thrillingly uh, as they could. But they don't know how it sounds. And then, of course, the punchline in this article from The Ringer that Bob Power talks in, he's like, I would never I would be out of my mind if I did it now. And speaking of texture and tracking. This leads to point number four of eight, and that is not just the rapping skills of Q-Tip and Fife, but it's the whole idea of the voice being its own instrument on a hip-hop record. Not just the rapping, beyond the rapping and the rhyming and the flowing, it's the voice as its own instrument. And Q-Tip really started this more than any other uh, hip-hop artist, and you can kind of draw a line Q-Tip started voice as instrument on a hip-hop record. It starts with Q-Tip, begats Biggie Smalls, begats DMX, begats Lil Jon, begats fucking Kanye, <laughs> and so on. And yeah, I mean, you know, and like you mentioned in a discussion we had, Chris, earlier, you know, we can talk about Rakim and Chuck D from Public Enemy, but those guys are more about musicality, not, you know, actual music, which is a difference. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, and and that's an important point that um, that you know, Q-Tip, you know, like you said, he's got that really kind of smooth, distinctive, uh, almost like buttery. It's not even raspy; it's almost like this buttery smooth, like yeah. kind of 
uh, just like unique uh, speaking voice, but also the way he talks. You know, I, I did an interview with him 22 years ago, and he talks about his manager, and he actually says, Chris Lighty is my man for a very long time. Uh, mm. You know, these kind of quirky things. And so you take those sort of uh, idiosyncrasies with that voice, and he's able to uh, position the beats so that his his it's just perfect for his voice, you know. Yeah. And he does it for Fife too. Think about bugging out when uh, when he first comes in. Yo, yo, microphone check. What is this? And yeah. the way that you know that kind of high uh, voice that yeah. that he has yeah. that it just works with the bottom, and then when it kind of takes off, and it, his voice fits right there. Uh, almost as its own instrument. Um, and, and again, look, uh, Biggie did it better than anybody. Uh, his people, you know, Easy Moby and all of his uh, uh, producers did it brilliantly. Like, uh, to me, Biggie is the Miles Davis of hip hop. And, to, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, like his voice as an instrument is just incredible. I mean, just the way he could, uh, you know, kind of modulate it and have that deep voice, but the way he could kind of express it. Like if you hear Give Me the Loot, I mean, that's like the greatest uh, single vocal track in hip hop history. Uh, but we're talking about this record, Q-Tip and Fife all the way through it. It just fits and it is part of the music. It's, you know, and even if you don't understand what the hell they're talking about, or you're not even listening to the lyrics, you're totally engaged by them because yes, they are their own instruments uh, in the way that it's produced. And that, you know, and that interchange, you know, like I said, you know, the kind of the lower buttery voice and that kind of higher, more street uh, uh, tones. And, and again, we're talking tones. I mean, it's it. It actually was produced for the voices to be an instrument. It's, it's pretty incredible. And it really starts here. And, yeah, you can say and a lot of people might disagree with us, but, you know, Rakim and Chuck D, yes, they had their own voices and without them and, and KRS-One, too. Uh, they would never, uh, you know, their stuff might not have worked or their bands might not have worked without them, but there's a certain musicality and there's a use of their voice, but it, you know, it's not, the, the music is not tailored to those yeah. voices, which brings us by the way, to explicitly to point five. Exactly. That's the whole idea of, um, Q-tip back to Q-tip again, because he really is the, the really was the leader of this group. Um, Q-Tip was, we claim, hip-hop's first real, quote-unquote, singer-songwriter. Now, when we say singer-songwriter, we don't say it in the poet laureate sense of, like, you know, of Bob Dylan or Leonard Cohen. Or when James mean, Taylor, you know. James, well, fuck James Taylor. Anyway, <laughs> what the fuck? Uh, okay. <laughs> Please. Anyway, um, singer-songwriter in the sense of this esoteric expressiveness that hip hop had not seen until Q-Tip landed on the scene. Um, the argument we make without him, we don't get Andre 3000 from Outkast or Eminem or even Kanye West, you know, uh, people like them were, yeah, they're rappers, they're, they're, they're hip hop artists, but they're also, they also see themselves as songwriters as well. They, yeah. they, they, they kind of transcend uh, uh, the limitations of hip hop in that sense. And Q-Tip was the first person to do that for hip hop. Yeah. And, and we'll make it more explicit. Uh, they, these are all folks that produce themselves. Uh, so Q-Tip was not only rapping on these things and to make, to make clear, by the way, uh, there are, uh, two beats on there, uh, uh, that are, uh, 
uh, credited to Skef Anselm. So it's not all Q-Tip, but it's Q-Tip right. and then Ali Shahid Muhammad would, you know, cause he's more of a DJ put in some cuts and, you know, added some, you know, added some of that, that background noise and some of the other sampling came from Ali as well, but Q-Tip, uh, he produced it and then he positioned his voice and he, he tailored his, like he even says it in the movie that it's, you know, the, the bebop thing, it's like a freestyling. And so what he's doing as, as a rapper comes from his own music. Right. You know? And it's sort of, you know, it's inspired by it. It fits it and, 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 and all of that. And so, like I said, you know, you come, you know, later into the future, you get lose yourself uh, by Eminem. It's the same thing. I mean, you know, yeah. it's it's his music and his story and his song, and then like Kanye's power or uh, Kanye's gone or or mm-hmm. stuff like that, where he's using like these uh, amazing sort of uh, you know sort of sample uh, collages in his own right and fitting his voice and fitting uh, his uh, his messages to the beat and to his own yeah. music. And I don't know of anybody that did you know. Can you name anybody before Q-Tip that did that? No, no, there wasn't. There really, there really was not. Oh. And, and 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 on the low end theory, that shit becomes prominent more, way more so than on their first album, uh, Beats, Rhymes, and you know, yeah, life. I, I forgot I, the whole name. Yeah, yeah, Beats, Rhymes, and Life, and and uh, Midnight Marauders, and all that. Uh, but I mean, look, if there's anybody that I can name, I mean, I mean, there's Dre, but you know. Everybody ghost wrote his shit for him. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, yeah. I, you know, Ice Cube wrote, literally wrote three quarters straight out of Compton. Yeah. Uh, so maybe you could say Ice Cube could do it, but he wasn't producing. It wasn't his music. Um, and, that, and, and, and and also Ice Cube wasn't as um, self-reflective as Q-Tip was. Yeah. Well, but then again, he was. Well, well, that, that, that's the other thing about Q-Tip. You got to remember, Q-Tip's born in 1970. He's making this record when he's 20 years old. And, yeah. and it comes out when he's 21 and which by the way, makes the line back in the day when I was a teenager, uh, <laughs> really audacious. <Yeah. laughs> That's audacious as hell when you think about it. But you know, and again, you know, you can think Marley Marl and big daddy Kane are, are connected at the hip, uh, Rick Rubin and LL Cool J, um, Rick Rubin and run DMC, uh, you know, and yeah. all of this now, maybe, uh, as you get later on and it really doesn't come until after this record, maybe the Beastie Boys started to get there because Yawk uh, yeah. got more involved uh, in in the music uh, itself. But yeah, I, again, I if anybody can name a uh, hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, we'll probably start a thread on this uh, in the Curmudgeon League community. But man, if somebody knows of somebody that predated Q-Tip, tell us because dude, we I, like as far as I know, you and I know our hip chop shit really well, and I can't name anybody. <laughs> you know, uh, from yeah. from uh, of that uh, of that sort of ilk and that kind of talent. Yeah. So uh, that's why we admire this record because it really was the start of something special. Well, it's one of the reasons we admire this. Record. Yes, and one one of the many reasons. And the next reason, point number six, that 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 the low end theory was revolutionary. The whole idea of self awareness, self consciousness on a social and political level and expressed through abstract verses. Now that sounds really high-minded and esoteric. It's because it was. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, these guys clearly knew what they were that 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 what they were attempting was pretty freaking weird, especially for its time and it's still singular even now. Their approach would still be singular even by today's standards. 
Um, and th- th- this is the work of people who are really, really smart. I, I, I'm going to call them kids because they were kids. Yeah, no, <laughs> they, they, they definitely were kids. And they were kids yeah, when they did this. You know? Yeah, and, and the idea is, and like half of the lyrics, like we said, it's their relationship with the music business, but also it's Q-Tip kind of, exp- uh, and in, in some instances, Five kind of explaining what they're doing. And yeah. this idea of all of the things that they're connecting, you know, in terms of the history of black music, of black culture, of New York, uh, you know, all of the references to Bambata and Zulu Nation and right. all of those shout outs. And, you know, they're really kind of seeing them on uh, the continuum. Like, think about all this. And not only that, but they also see themselves as part of this larger group of revolutionaries that included, sure. uh, you know, leaders sure. of the New School and the Jungle Brothers and De La and all those. I mean, it one of the thrilling things about Versus from the Abstract is uh, all of those shout outs. You know, yeah. which which is funny because Bob Powers, one of the guys that gets a shout out. Uh, so he's so he's not only, in, you know, Bob Powers, of, you know, he was the engineer, but he's a long timer uh, that I think had been attached to that studio that it was in uh, Battery Studios in New York uh, for a long time. And so like the shout outs, but like, you know, uh, Bambada, I think, gets a shout out. Busta Rhymes, <laughs> you know, uh, all, all of these folks. Um, and it, it, it bears mentioning that, you know, he's he's here sitting there trying to he's actually trying to prove a theory of how you know hip-hop kind of fits in here and how what he's doing and how it fits into the business and the, it's the sort of the 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 angst of the artist uh this is where the the neat trick of having ron carter come in and actually right. play bass live uh in a one-hour session there are interviews out there with ron carter where he says i didn't know what the hell you know my my notion of hip-hop was that it was just this dirty filthy crap and, uh, yeah. and basically, uh, he was, he only did, I think it was like three takes in an hour, uh, got his money, but, uh, Q-tip had to convince him that it wasn't dirty, filthy, and it wasn't, just, <laughs> and it wasn't just swearing for the, the sake of, of swearing. Although he does get away with, with a couple of really great, uh, dirty zingers in that song, but I yeah. think Ron, just Ron Carter being there and Ron Carter is, you know, he, he is w- one of the more renowned, uh, under kind of underground, but he was kind of a session man, uh, a double uh, upright double bass player. And he has a non-net that plays all over New York uh, or used, at least used to, but uh, just having him on there and saying here, 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 I'm talking about the bass and I have one of the best bassists uh, uh, in New York actually playing on my record. And so that self-consciousness uh, is there. And so there's, there's just a, a lot of that. Again, it, it's, it's kind of a thrilling artistic uh, adventure and, you know, they knew it. Um, all right. Now, point seven, why this is the greatest hip hop album ever. Now we get to art versus commerce. Um, they wanted to be successful, but it didn't. They wanted to be commercially successful. A Tribe Called Quest. And the first album was uh, Beats, Rhymes and Life was very commercially successful. But this album really was not a commercial album for its times, although it ended up being commercially successful and critically revered and adored just by the sheer force of its artistry and its depth. Yeah. It yeah. transcended. It got to that point. They weren't trying to get there, but it got there. You know? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. This wasn't no commercial album, uh, especially for the times. I mean, look, you know, there was, you know, three foot high, three feet high and rising by uh, yeah. De, La, De La Soul as, as being a sort of groundbreaking record. But, that obviously, I mean, you know, Prince Paul, 
you know, he he was making pop music. I mean, let's face sure. it. Sure. Uh, uh, there, but these guys were just kind of doing their own thing, and they were betting on themselves. Uh, yeah. You know, obviously, you know, people's instinctive uh, uh, travels with like, you know, I lost my wallet in the El Segundo, and you know, all of that stuff. Obviously, you know, they were they were making accessible music, but I don't. Th- this was not. You know, it wasn't a new Jack record. Uh, it wasn't gangster rap for sure. It wasn't even uh, related to Public Enemy or or EPMD. You know, this sort of gourmet hip hop yeah. uh, that at the time. And so it, um, they were going to say the music is just as important as the rhyming. And so they did this, and they kind of just dropped it and said, you know, we'll take our chances, but this is what we want to do. And, you know, we think people will dig this record. Now, it peaked at number 45 on the Billboard Hot or the, the 200 albums chart. Way too low. Jesus. Yeah, I know. And uh, yeah, it did, you know, and but it and at the time, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, it was overshadowed uh, by Cypress Hill and Black Sheep. Uh, they were the ones like MTV, like The Choice Is Yours and uh, How I Could Just Kill a Man. And uh, there were a couple of other groups that were breaking uh, at that time. Hell, I mean, Crisscross and ABC were getting more attention. <laughs> you, know, you know, the little the little kids and like Belle Biv DeVoe and, and all this stuff. And and so they were they were they were overshadowed. But like I said, the hip hop heads all got it and 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 loved it uh, from the jump. And then obviously the cult of it uh, of it grew. But no, they were not. Uh, you know, this was no. Uh, yeah, you know, like let's say like Def Leppard's Hysteria. No, this this yeah. was not made with you know we we're wanting to be huge stars in mind. I mean, this just this was an album made with a lot of integrity. Um, yeah, and you know Jive, you know for all the problems they had with Jive, at least Jive gave them the freedom to do it. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think well they, they had that success with the first album, so they had that little bit of a, a of a loose leash to uh, to do this and what resulted was revolutionary and that yeah. leads to point number eight uh speaking of the revolutionary aspect of this album it's undying influence i mean you mentioned earlier chris how kanye west said this is the this is the first album he ever bought was a tribe called quest the low-end theory um and how tribe called quest was just a huge influence on kanye's music uh, later on, maybe not so much style, uh, maybe not so much sound wise, but definitely style wise and, and, and on the, in the esoterica, uh, uh, uh standpoint, um, Pharrell Williams of the Neptunes, uh, has gone on record several times saying that a tribe called quest changed his life, yep. especially the low end theory, how like that really like made him think differently about hip hop and what is possible in hip hop. Yeah. And, you know, went on to what, you know, of course, he went on to do a lot of successful work with the Neptunes, his own production team and with Daft Punk and a bunch of other people. Yeah. Um, Doc, Dr. Dre, um, Dr. Dre has gone on record admitting that the Lohan theory was a big influence for him in making the chronic. Yeah. And um, not only that, but uh, him and Tip were trading tapes during that. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, so so Tip was feeding Dre the stuff he was doing. And yeah. saying, yeah, oh, you want to make an album that has bass? Well, okay, well, here's the stuff I'm doing, or the layer of drums. And it's kind of like, yeah. and, you know, and, and again, to be fair, Dre was kind of heading in that direction anyway. Evil right. for Zagan, even though it's repugnant and deliberately repugnant, yeah. has some really great beat work on it. So, yeah, totally. So, so, and yeah. Yeah, go ahead. 
Yeah, and the Jay Dilla, another one that we that we didn't mention, um, the late Jay Dilla, who died several years ago. Um, his beats very influenced by a tribe called Quest, particularly this album. And like, there's well, no one in hip hop. There's no one in hip hop who doesn't like Jay Dilla. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> and 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 keep in mind that uh, JD Jay Dilla got his start as a part of the AMA. That yeah. uh, basically uh, beats rhymes in life. Uh, in a lot of ways, is a uh, is a showcase because the Alma was uh, was the two guys from Tribe, and then Jay yeah. Dilla. And uh, what it was is they they all kind of did their own thing, and it was it was designed as a Lennon McCartney kind of deal, right? Where, where one guy would do the work, and then all three of them would get the credit. But uh, JD uh, Jay Dilla did most of the the beat work on Beats, Rhymes, and Life, which is a pretty good record. And then obviously, you know, JD he went on to do Slum Village and a lot of other stuff. And he uh, he died in uh, early aughts and uh, has become this legend uh, since then for good reason. The guy was damn good. Uh, I mean, he he took what uh, the the Tip was doing with drums on Midnight Marauders, where he kind of perfected the drum thing, and he just took it and ran with it and perfected it big time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Other producers, Dan the Automator, who did a handsome boy modeling school, and, and uh, Deltron, uh, Doctor and Deltron, and Doctor Octagon. Yeah, uh, Cool Keith, um, Timbaland on a more commercial level, Rodney Jerkins, Kendrick Lamar again. I mean, all, all these producers, you know, like like studied at and worship at the altar of of the low end theory. Yeah, um, and and then not only that, and uh, I'll set you up to 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 expound on this, Arturo, I don't know if I necessarily agree with this, uh, but you have a contention and a theory that the low end theory and what Q-tip was doing had a huge influence on what we now know as Neo soul. Oh, totally. It all starts with that album. Yeah. So, so, so expand on that a little bit for us. Well, I mean, let's look at D'Angelo. Um, the album that he's most known for is that 2000 album voodoo, um, which I'm not a huge fan of, uh, mainly because of the monotony. But what he's going for is basically a southern fried low end theory. <laughs> is what yeah. he, is he's going uh, basically really minimalist, lots of heavy bass grooves, um, lots of processed drums. Um, he, he's not a rapper; he's a soul singer. But musically, he's going for that jazzy low end theory um, sound. Uh, personally, I think it fails because it all sounds the same. They didn't have that. You know, beat uh, 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 beats having their own texture that Tribe Called Quest had going. That each each song, each beat, while at first sounds similar, they really don't. They're all really unique. Um, D'Angelo, in my period, in my opinion, uh, failed in that. Erica Badu in her first album, Baduism from 1997, another R&B soul record, clearly low end theory influenced in its jazz inflections, uh, its sparse rhythms. Um, it's, it's socially conscious lyrics, uh, Maxwell, same thing, Jill Scott, similar thing. It really does, man. You can connect Neo, Neo soul, hip tribe called quest are not a Neo soul group, but Neo soul starts with them. Like, 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 like they were, they were, they, they were one of the germs for that. Definitely. Okay. So Chris, for all of you listeners out there is going to attempt a feat of mental and research dexterity. I'm going to list, I'm going to mention every song from num- track one through track 14 on the low end theory. Chris will give us what samples are on those songs. So Chris, 
Track number one, Excursions. Okay, it is based on uh, the uh, bass and horn parts from a 1973 song by Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers called A Chant for Boo. Nice. And when you listen to it, it's it's really kind of only in the beginning of it. And then it turns into, like one, like I said, this sort of noodly jazz fusion thing that was big in the 70s uh, and goes and thinks. But the fact that they seized on that 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 one little bass line and the horn uh, was pretty extraordinary. There's also a Last Poets, uh, Gil Scott Heron uh, 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 vocal uh, interlude uh, in there uh, that is uh, some really great garnish and actually kind of uh, spiritually and even lyrically kind of fits the point of this idea of, you know, we're coming in time and we're connecting the jazz and we're connecting the, uh, you know, what we're doing and this sort of braggadocio of, of the paradigm shift. Uh, so it's kind of neat. Yeah. Track number two, bugging out. Okay. So uh, the base, this is actually incredible. The baseline uh, is a piece by piece creation that comes from a song called Minya's the Mooch by Jack DeJohnette's Directions. And wow. it's that that sequence of six bass notes, I listened to the song several times, does not actually exist in the song. It's, mm. you know, the, the bass stuff is there, but my sense is, is that these guys cut it up into those six notes, oh. which is a really amazing feat. Uh, if that I think that's true. Uh, the the uh, there's also uh, some color uh, in there from a, a Lonnie Smith cover of uh, Blood, Sweat and Tears Spinning Wheel. Uh, that's where the drums come from. Uh, so so the the drum that hits really hard on that comes from that cover of of Spinning Wheel. Uh, one comment to make on here, and this is where you kind of get the music of the voices, but also the uh, uh, the best distillation of how different and how deliberately uh, opposite the personas were on this. And so you get Fife's first verse, which is really famous and really amazing. Uh, Yo, microphone check one, two, what is this? The five foot assassin with the roughneck business. I float like gravity, never had a cavity, got more rhymes than the ones got family uh, that got family. Uh, And then a couple minutes later, uh, then you get, uh, Tip chiming in very rhythmically, and he comes in, Zulu Nation, Brothers at Creation. Minds get flooded, ejaculation right on the two-inch tape. The abstract poet Incognito runs the cape. Doesn't make any sense to me, but <laughs> but it just kind of shows you, and and it, it all just sounds like, it, again, it's it's all intentional. It is yeah. all intentional. Absolutely. So, so what's track next on the list? Track number three, Rap Promoter. Yes. So uh, Rap Promoter, the uh, the guitar lick is from a song in the 70s called uh, Long Way Down by Eric Mercury. It's that little guitar lick that runs all the way through it. Uh, there's also some stuff in there from the song Eighth Wonder by the Sugar Hill Gang. Uh, despite all my research, I was not able to actually pinpoint the bass line, which is obviously the most prominent feature of that song. But I did track down the garnish. <laughs> you know, and and so that was a challenge. And then, of course, uh, we uh, this is the best way to back up my assertion that the voices instrument uh, was there. And uh, indulge me, folks. 
dang diggy dang da dang da dang diggy diggy. Yeah. Yeah. Which is which is <laughs> that, my, my that's, a, that's yeah. a hook. Yes, that's a hook. That's my absolute favorite Q-tip line on the whole record, and that's the outro to that uh, to that wonderful song. Track number four, Butter. Okay, so that comes from the band Weather Reports, Young and Fine, where uh, that 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 keys loop thing comes from. That you know that that sort mm. of like woozy uh, uh, key loop thing uh, comes from them. Uh, not exactly sure where the drums come from, but yeah, but the main thing. Again, that this is a lot of this is 70s. Some of it is some of it is 60s, but a lot of it is like 72, 73, 74 uh, that uh, that he's really focused on and sort of transporting us uh, back to that remixing that and getting that wooziness. And this on Butter, this might be actually the wooziest sample from the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So. All right. Number track number five. Verses from the abstract. Yeah, this is really where it gets interesting because uh, you've got uh, uh, the drums coming from a song called Upon This Rock by a guy named Joe Farrell, which, you know, is this hard hitting little beat, uh, a little drum beat that he uses all through it. And then the rest of it uh, really comes from uh, a song from the band Heat Wave, which is more sort of a disco y <laughs> kind of outfit <laughs> uh, called The Star of a Story. And so uh, the the guitar and the vocal sample, you know, that kind, mm. that kind of little soulful uh, female uh, voice sample all comes from that. And then, of course, we said the bass is actually live in the studio for Mr. Ron Carter. Uh, he mm. actually says Ron Carter on the bass. And uh, one one thing that makes me laugh, again, is uh, that Ron Carter insisting that he won't play on this if it's dirty. And so, you know, and Q-Tip says, well, there is a point to this. And so he raps and there's a line in there that says, Girls love the gym because it causes crazy friction when it goes up in and fluctuates the diction. And uh, yeah, and Ron Carter, uh, who knows, maybe he felt duped. I don't know, but uh, very funny to me that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I mean, I mean, I mean, it's it's I wouldn't call it that dirty. I would call that more a little more like a subversive, subversively clever and witty. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It's witty and it's wordplay. I mean, it's it's about the wordplay, and I I think it kind of proves the idea that it is verses from the abstract, from the yeah, very, totally. very, very abstract. So, Tr- track number six, show business. Okay, this is uh, this is one of the two uh, uh, tracks that Q-Tip did not produce himself. This is from uh, one of their associates, a guy named Skef Anselm. Uh, and uh, this is a mismatch of a whole lot of things. There's Aretha. There's uh, the Fatback Band. There's a cover of Midnight Cowboy. And then this is the one spot where, yeah, hey, you know, they were really clever. They snuck in, and I don't hear it by ear, but they snuck in James Brown's Funky President. Nice. Not exactly sure how. Not exactly sure where, but it is somewhere in there. And, yeah, that that is sort of the – it's the – it's got some of that jazz. It's got some of that uh, wooziness uh, in there, but it's not as it's not as minimal. And yeah. I think it's sort of purposely kind of all all over the place. And obviously, they stuff all that in there. So there you go. Track number seven, vibes and stuff, which is a wonderful song with great lyric, but it's all built from the same source. Grant Green's "Down Here on the Ground." And, you know, Grant Green was this wonderful uh, uh, jazz uh, guy, a uh, multi-instrumentalist uh, uh, from the 70s. And the whole song, uh, 
vibes and stuff. It takes everything. The bass, the guitar solo, and uh, yeah, the vibes. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, all oh, yeah, everything comes from that song. So it might as well just be, it's kind of like your old school, you know, it's almost like you can't touch this, you know, <laughs> in, you know in some way. So that's the easiest one to pin down and appreciate that they turn that to uh, a hip hop beat. So, you know, more power to them. Track number eight and the song that kicks off side two, if we're listening to this on vinyl, the infamous date rape. Yep. And so uh, this one is uh, the the main hook of it. The uh, the sort of the um, again woozy the sort of the the string uh, keyboard bass thing comes from a song called the Steam Drill by uh, Cannonball Adderley, uh, and uh, the drums come from a song called Is It Him or Me by Jackie Jackson, uh, who, as far as I know, is not related to any of those Jacksons. Uh, and then uh, it actually does a vocal interpolation uh, from MC Light in a song called 10% This. And so some of the stuff, it's not actually sampled from there, but it's it's kind of a riff or it's a, um, a male version of, of uh, a couple of bits from, uh, from that song. And that's kind of like MC Light's uh, battle rap to all the guys out there. And, you know, she's like the one... Uh, feet like legit female competitor at the time so it's flipping it on its head uh question i have about the infamous date rape and a question for you already uh would that fly today here's the thing um the song okay the bait the basic toward the end of the song you get the sense that what q-tip is saying is that if you have consensual sex with a woman and then she cries rape afterward don't get upset with her she's just having her period <laughs> That's basically what Q-Tip is saying. Yeah. So th- th- that is pretty misogynist. Um, it is pretty sexist. However, I'm going to say relative and compared to a lot of other hip hop of the day, that yeah. is not that bad by comparison. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, compared to Two Live Crew or some of the stuff NWA were doing before that. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, even it's yeah. not that bad. Yeah. And, and I will say this. I mean, the song is kind of weird. It starts off with, you know, dudes, if she says no, if she sets the line, you don't do it. Uh, exactly. He does say that. If she says no, don't do it. But if right. it's consensual, it's consensual and we'll do it and all that. And then he kind of does that dig at the end of like, you know, it could have just been that she was, you know, that she was PMSing or, yeah. you know, she was starting her, her cycle or whatever, which again is kind of crude. But I wonder yeah. about that, given cancel culture, like even a song like that, which is really clever and it ain't quite feminist. Let's just put it that way. Clearly no. not feminist, but it's no. also it's also not like Scarface on any of those Ghetto Boys records. It's, it's not D, it's not DMX. <laughs> no, 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 not, 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 not at all. But I, I do wonder if that would survive cancel yeah. culture. Yeah. So right. track number nine, Check the Rhyme, which is the probably the most famous song from this record, ultimately. You know, uh, just it was the it was the quote unquote hit from this record back then. Uh, it's got the greatest call and response in the history of hip hop. You know, you on point five all the time, Tip. Uh, so uh, wonderful stuff. The uh, the samples, the discernible samples on there, the most important ones are uh, the that horn hook in the beginning uh, is from the average white man's "Love Your Life." Of of all sources, the average white yeah. man shows up in a tribe called Quest record. And then the bass part, you know, that kind of groovy little bass part that drives it comes from a Grover Washington Jr. track called Hydra, 
But uh, so those are the main uh, samples there. All right. Track number 10, Everything is Fair. Yeah, this is another one that uh, kind of goes all over the place. But the main thing and kind of the main part comes from a, uh, a Funkadelic song called Let's Take It to the Stage. Yeah. Yeah, which is a fun little track that Bootsy uh, does the vocals uh, for. So that's, that's kind of in the middle of it. But there's a couple of other... Uh, a couple of other sources going on there, but that's, that's really the backbone of it is let's take it to the, to the stage. All right. Uh, track number 11 jazz in parentheses we've got. Yeah. And, and this is the song and the title that leads to that whole jazz, uh, lazy jazz rap thing. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. It uses a lot of jazz to make a point, but it's not a jazz rap rap record. It's really just kind of a, uh, it's a, it's a, uh, sonic tour through uh, m- recent modern uh, underground black music. Uh, but uh, here uh, it's, there's an interesting thing going on. Uh, well, first off, Skef Anselm is credited as the producer of this, although I've read in a couple of spots that Pete Rock may have done uncredited production on this. And Pete Rock is, is a real, he, he's uh, for real hip hop heads. He's a legend uh, of, of hip hop uh, production. So he may have had some involvement on this. But uh, this is another interesting one of it. There's a bunch of uh, uh, of uh, sampling going on here. But the the most famous and the, the the main sample is a cover of On Green Dolphin Street uh, by Miles Davis from a guy named Jimmy mm. McGriff. It's it's not the original uh, track from A Kind of Blue. It's um, it's a cover of it. And so that's that horn part. And then uh, there's a little bit of Light My Fire by the Doors in there, too. Oh wow! Yeah, kind of, kind of built in there. A little bit of the organ kind of shows up in in some of the the backdrop uh, as well. All right, track number twelve, Sky Pager, uh, largely built on a baseline uh, from Eric Dolphy's uh, song Seventeen West. Uh, again, Sky Pager is the interesting one because it's the one that clearly outdates this record, or yeah. or, or puts it in nineteen ninety one, but also has one of the best beats on the entire thing. And one of the best uses of uh, of of that upright double bass sampling on the entire thing, and it's m- arguably one of the three or four most timeless beats on the entire thing. Oh yeah, like I said, there, there's no such thing as dated with this record. Even yeah, they could have been talking about a rotary phone; it still it, it would still sound good. Now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good point. Uh, number thirteen, what? Yeah, uh, what? Which is like a, a wonderful uh, little. Uh, poem kind of you could just tell it was like spur of the moment if it wasn't freestyle it was written five minutes before they got on the mic uh (laughs) by uh by uh tip but it's uh, from a song called uncle willie's dream by paul humphrey which i could not find anywhere uh to actually like hear the original but uh there's a there's an article just so uh just so people know if they uh they want to uh find it uh there's a mixed down which is a magazine from australia uh, mixdownmag.com.au. Uh, you can find there's an article that actually lists all this stuff out. So I don't want to sound like I'm too smart because uh, I had some help. I knew some of this, but I filled in the holes with that article. Uh, and and the last song, the last track. Um, while check the rhyme may be the most fondly remembered song, the actual biggest commercial hit from this record is featuring Busta Rhymes' scenario. Yes, this was the posse cut 
that was actually, I don't know if it was actually on the first cut of the record, but it blew up as a single and it got added on. Uh, maybe. Uh, that's what I suspect uh, happened because I remember it became a big to-do. I mean, this is this is the one thing that actually did get on MTV, but it was like late. It was like 92 or 93 that it yeah. actually got on there. But uh, built on a baseline from uh, an actual Miles Davis track from A Kind of Blue, uh, the baseline to So What? Uh, there and then the drums, uh, which you know you wouldn't think of because they hit so hard and they're a little turned up. But uh, uh, Arthur, uh, you you might be able to get this off the top of your head. Can you tell me where the the drum part from Scenario comes from? Uh, Led Zeppelin? I don't know. <laughs> no, uh, L- Little Miss Lover by Hendrix. Oh. Hendrix, okay. I can see yeah. it now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For that So, so yeah. So the uh, the bass or the drum loop on that song is is taken from Little Miss Lover by by Hendrix. So, so that in a way is kind of a neat trick and and one of uh, Tip's uh, grandest statements to support the low end theory is that he's getting uh, pieces from. Uh, a kind of blue and axis bold as love on the same song. Yeah. That, that is a very neat feat. Uh, yeah. And so that kind of runs a, 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 us through. And so those are the influences there. Um, uh, like I said, just uh, from, from beginning to end uh, the single most cohesive track listing and uh, run through of songs, exciting as hell, uh, a thrilling listen. Uh, it's kind of like a citizen Kane album. Every time I listen to it, I pick up something different yeah, uh, definitely. Like, like just now, like, like I think it was check the rhyme, but there, there, like seriously, is like a wind or an air <laughs> that's running through, uh, you know, running through the, uh, running through the, uh, the song. So it's, yeah. So uh, there you go, folks. That is our lightning round run through there. Uh, you know, your homework assignment is to track down all of those songs I just mentioned, whether it's on YouTube or Spotify or iTunes or wherever the hell you get your music. And I want a full book report on my desk by the time we hit with our next episode in two weeks. You hear gunshots. You hear a car doing a getaway. That's right, folks. We are now in the special gangster rap edition of The Vault. Gangster Vault. Gangster Vault. Whereas A Tribe Called Quest, The Low End Theory, as I've mentioned many times before, is the antithesis of anything gangster rap related the predominant hip-hop style of the very early 1990s was gangster rap and my choice is a gangster rap record a gangster rap classic chris's choice is a gangster rap classic so i will start with mine and that is ice cube the legendary former uh lead rapper for nwa his second solo album from 1991 30 years ago exactly, Death Certificate. Now let's go into this album. After breaking off from the pioneering gangster rap group NWA, where he was both the lead rapper and the main lyricist, Ice Cube emerged in 1990 with his solo debut, America's Most Wanted. America with three Ks, KKK, get it? Uh Um, it, and it, it, it's one of the best hip hop albums ever made. It is a scorching graphic manifesto of racial commentary, 
socioeconomic disparity and slice of life narratives about living in a violence and drug infested urban nightmare. It's like the African-American inner city hip hop version of a Hubert Selby novel. It really is just, (laughs) yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty graphic. Yeah. Um, Coming from Los Angeles, uh, Ice Cube's biggest signal of distancing himself from N.W.A.'s decidedly West Coast sound was having the album produced by the Bomb Squad, who were the production team behind New York City's Public Enemy, easily, hands down, one of the five greatest hip-hop groups of all time. Now, for his sophomore follow-up album, Death Certificate, Cube didn't quite go all the way back to a pure West Coast sound. It was more like a West Coast version of the Bomb Squad's intensely funky sound. And the twist in it all came in the heavy use of 1970s funk and soul music samples, beating Dr. Dre's The Chronic to the punch by one year, I might add. So... How does Death Certificate measure up 30 years later? Well, like I said earlier, gangster rap was the predominant hip-hop style during this period. And like all gangster rap, you have to take and discuss both the good and the bad. So let's start with the good. First, there's the voice. Powerful, angry, authoritative, defiant, charismatic. Very few artists in hip-hop history can claim to grab people by the private parts through the sheer force of their voice, as Ice Cube does. Um, Chuck D is the other that comes to mind, and very few afterward, maybe the notorious B.I.G. It's been said that Cube raps with the same flow and cadence in almost every song. My response? So fucking what, man? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good cadence. You're permitted to be a bit monotonous when the delivery works, time and time again and death certificate is the album that finds itself in the middle of ice cubes hot album streak where he could do no wrong uh 1990s america's most wanted being the first and 1992's the predator being the third second there are the lyrics when nwa straight out of compton came out in 1988 no rapper before ice cube captured Uh, the anger and disaffection of disenfranchised inner-city black youth the way he did. And there was one good reason for this. Cube himself was only 19 years old when Straight Outta Compton came out. He was the youth he was rapping about and addressing. Uh, Death Certificate is only three years later, and a 22-year-old Ice Cube talks about the prevalence of sexually transmitted diseases in poor neighborhoods, in Look Who's Burning. Uh, In Alive on Arrival, he laments the death of an innocent young black man shot in the crossfire of a gang shootout and who bleeds to death while the cops question him at the hospital. Um, Ice Cube really did carry that voice of a generation weight on his shoulders for a while during the late 1980s into the early 90s. An underrated aspect of Ice Cube's lyricism, by the way, is that while he's always been shoehorned in the gangster rap style, his lyrics have never been from the perspective of a gangster or a criminal, unlike, say, Biggie or 50 Cent or early Jay-Z. They're usually in a third-person, objective, narrator point of view, um, someone commentating on what's happening. Yeah. Uh, one, of, one of the standout tracks on the album, A Bird in the Hand, 
tells the story of a young man who resorts to a life of crime simply because of the limited or absence of opportunities to make a living. Uh, the implication is that things are so bad in low-income neighborhoods that young people feel compelled to live a lifestyle that Ice Cube pretty clearly despises. Uh, in Colorblind, Cube practically begs for peace between the Crips and the Bloods for the sake of improving their communities. Uh, for a guy known as a gangster rapper, uh, Ice Cube was no gangster. Um, another aspect of Ice Cube's lyrics that gets overlooked is his sense of humor albeit a very dark, mordant humor. Uh, on Man's Best Friend, he questions what truly a man's best friend is, a dog or a Gatling gun to protect himself while he's walking down the street. Hmm. Uh, on Doing Dumb Shit, he isn't afraid to make fun of his youth and all his sexual exploits as he lists them one by one to a hilarious effect. And third, and to round up the good, is the funk. And I mean, da funk. Yeah. See, the, the biggest problem I have with modern hip hop, or more specifically modern mainstream hip hop, is that you just can't dance to it. It yeah. isn't funky. No, it it's not funky, funky at all. Yeah. And, and, and the funk is a huge part of hip hop's DNA. And to refuse that is like the human body refusing water, you know? Um, for as great as a beat master as Dr. Dre was with NWA, I'll argue that Ice Cube expanded and improved on the funk with the Bomb Squad on America's Most Wanted and on Death Certificate, where Cube took over the general production duties. I challenge anyone to not feel the need to shake their asses after listening to the deep grooves of uh, Steady Mob and the big single from this album, or I Want to Kill Sam. All right, now we have to discuss the bad. And this is some of the lyrical content that, quite frankly, hasn't aged well now that we're living in the age of the Me Too movement and the demand for social justice reform. Of course, this refers to the misogyny and the homophobia that riddles much of what is otherwise Ice Cube's terrific early records. Um, no Vaseline is essentially a diss track aimed at former bandmate Eazy-E, but uh, Ice Cube does it in the most crudely, disturbingly homophobic manner possible. Yep. <laughs> you know, calling Eazy-E a quote-unquote faggot is especially creepy when we know that Eazy-E would die of AIDS a few years later, yeah. even, if he was, even if he wasn't gay, you know? Uh, Black Korea, although only a 46-second song, uh, is especially bothersome for me. Um, someone who lives in Korea and is married to a Korean woman. Uh, a little context is needed here. Uh, in March 1991, a teenage black girl named Latasha Harlins was shot to death by a Korean convenience store owner over an argument regarding a bottle of orange juice. Now, this was big news at the time, and Ice Cube, in the song, responded by threatening violence, namely of the rioting and looting variety against all Korean-owned stores in black neighborhoods. What should have come across as a lament for the lack of Black-owned businesses in inner-city neighborhoods instead came across as something hateful and rather racist. Um, Cube never really properly addressed this in the media. To yeah. effect, when the Rodney King riots broke out in L.A. in 1992, many Korean-owned stores were targeted. Yep. Uh, and then you have the song, Giving Up the Nappy Dugout, in which Ice Cube tells a tale of a young girl who... Uh, leads a life of sexual promiscuity and, let's just say, implied prostitution. 
um, what should be a cautionary tale about what poverty and socioeconomic disparity does to inner city youth instead ends up being a stereotypical bitch is a hoe narrative, uh, lacking any kind of sympathy whatsoever, where he utilizes basically all the typical language of gender oppression. Yeah. So if you're willing to forgive some of the true ugliness of the lyrics, there's a lot to love about Ice Cube's music, particularly his early run of solo records, of which Death Certificate is right smack in the middle of. And while lyrical content may not always be necessarily timeless, the music certainly is. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of ugly. Yeah. yeah speaking of ugly, not, not, not as ugly as this record, but close. Uh, so uh, I alluded to it earlier. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Cypress Hill's debut album, self-titled uh, Cypress Hill, which came out a month before Alone in Theory. And uh, let's talk about this record in uh, a, a little bit. Um, so uh, let me quote a lyric uh, from uh, this record uh, that uh, that uh, be real. The uh, the main rapper uh, says, uh, "Head in the casket, your body in a basket, a tisket, a tasket. I told you I'm gonna blast you when I'm on the psychobeta state of mind over Magnum. You know I'm gonna tag them." You're going to get flunked when I fuck you down. Now, in his with the the kind of the psychedelic beat and with Be Real's voice, uh, that is some convincing stuff. And <laughs> it's really a big part of what makes that album so mesmerizing and at times actually terrifying. Uh, yeah. Now, this was really kind of a groundbreaking record. Uh, this is uh, this is hip hop. Uh, as identity politics uh, to uh, the nth uh, degree. Uh, this is an album that represents for the stoned uh, Mexicali gangsters of Los Angeles's Southgate neighborhood. Uh, you know, everybody at the time, you know, it was like, uh, this was sort of the beginning of, well, I need to rep for my crew or I need to rep for my uh, people or my, eth my ethnic group. And, uh, and so, you know, eventually that found its way to the South or, you know, oddly like St. Louis or Houston or whatever, this sort of um, uh, parochial ethnic uh, representation of hip hop. Uh, that's one of, I think, the, the greatest legacies of this record. Um, at the time, it was getting uh, press as being perhaps the most revolutionary album of all time in hip hop and the one that would be the shining monument of that era because of the you know, uniqueness of the voices, because of the talent of DJ Muggs, uh, who you know, we'll talk about in a sec, uh, but because of the low-end theory and the chronic, uh, that turned out not to be the case, where this is more sort of a, um, you know, folks our age will remember it. And, you know, Cypress Hill yeah. has got a fan base for obvious uh, smoked-out reasons, uh, which is unfortunate, by the way. But uh, this album still is a stone cold classic, pun intended. Uh, so it really all springs from the imagination and musical mind of a guy named Larry Muggerud, otherwise known as DJ Muggs. Yep. And then you've got the rappers uh, Be Real and Send Dog. Uh, Muggs is a producer and he has this brilliant template. You've got this sort of woozy and psychedelic uh, kind of laid back but kind of not uh, beat. Uh, you know, the beats are really hard. 
even though they have this sort of laid back uh, vocabulary and sampling. But you can't really call this shit laid, laid back. I mean, because you've got all this wild sampling and then you've got, uh, you know, the lyrical content, which basically can be described as guns and weed. Uh, <laughs> but not in a initially not in a buffoonish sense. Yeah, it was in some ways it's cartoony in its imagery, but be real. Uh, he has like the most soulful, deep Mexicali speaking voice you'll ever want to hear. But he adopted that high nasally character, you know, almost like Mel, Mel Blancish or Mel Blankish yeah. uh, uh, tone uh, to his voice for here. And it's really kind of scary, you know, that he's got this sort of uh, almost like there's a charisma to it, but it's I'm going to kill you and I hate the cops. And, you know, the lead track is called Pigs, and it's all about how he hates the cops and how he wants to kill all of them. And yeah. it's very convincing. Uh, and again, with mugs. So you've got all this sort of heavy funk and soul and acid rock guitar garnish. And then a lot of subtle rhythm, uh, Latin rhythms. And in other cases, like the song Latin Lingo, not so subtle. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, you've got the voices with Be Real's nasally thing. And that's sort of uh, evened out by Sendog, who is a Cuban immigrant. But he's got kind of the more lower, uh, really don't give a fuck gangsta kind of voice. Uh, and uh, so you've got, uh, and, and again, Muggs does some weird shit on this record, like the song called Light Another. Uh, mm-hmm. It leans on roller rink disco horns and claps to drive wow. forward an ode to marijuana. It's not the first influence I would think of for a green test, but man, does it work? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, I say it's uh, it's it's kind of a, a neat trick. So, uh, so you you know you you get you get all of of that. I mean, obviously, there's some amazing singles on this. Uh, Hand on the pump, uh, which has got uh, this really great uh, vocal loop of the song Duke of Earl the old, uh, the old doo-wop song. Uh, and then how I could just kill a man. Uh, yeah. you know, those are probably the two most famous songs uh, on this record. And rage, rage against a machine does a great version of how I can just kill a man. Oh yeah. Which is not as good as this. Uh, yeah. you know, with all the sort of the, uh, you know, that little bridge with the, the little horn kind of, uh, kind of Latin horn, uh, beat. And then, you know, with all the sort of, you know, sprinkling like guitars and pianos and all this, it's just pure chaos. Uh, and it and it's wonderful. And it's got, you know, uh, you know, one of the most famous hooks, you know, of, of all that, of all that gangster rap, you know. Yeah. Here is something you can't understand. You know, yeah. Yeah. All of that. So it's uh, so it's a, a lot of uh, stuff going on there. Um, so this album was really, really successful, became a huge hit. Uh, but it became a big ass hit with frat boys, with white frat boys yep. in college, uh, that who paid more attention to the weed stuff than the actual gangsta tales. And this is like, they're, right. st- they're still doing dark, scary ass narratives at this point, but they caught on to this fact that the kids really love the, the gun slogans and the lyrics about weed. And so for most of their the rest of their career, this is what they seized upon. Yeah. The cartoonishness that you could say existed on uh, the self-titled record became buffoonishness. And, right. it, you know, like insane in the brain and 
you know, all that, uh, you know, I want to get high and you know, all that stuff from uh, Black Sunday and then uh, Temples of Boom and, you know, all this other stuff. And it just got really, really silly. Uh, they got more famous. They sold a lot of records. Uh, yeah. They became part of the cultural uh, fabric of the 90s and into the 2000s. But, you know, they sold themselves out and they sold themselves out early. Uh, lately, they've been coming back a little bit and getting truer to thyself. Uh, for a while, DJ Muggs was only tangentially attached to the group, but he came back big time in the last uh, album or two. And uh, so they're kind of getting back uh, to where they were. Uh, as a trivial note, I will mention that the song Stoned is the Way of the Walk, which is really fun, uh, has that exact same Grant Green sample that we talked about from, <laughs> from Vibes and Stuff. Wow. So apparently, yeah, uh, it was uh, some of these guys were dipping in the same crates, uh, but Tip, yeah. did, Tip did it much, 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 much better. And now we've left the vault and we've come to the end of what I think has been a very exciting exercise. Our first uh, episode dedicated to one piece of art. And it won't be the last. There will be others to come. Yes, yes, there will be. And so... Uh, folks, thank you for uh, being part of our curmudgeonly community. Like we always say, this is your podcast made just for you. Uh, if you have uh, countering opinions or anything strong that you want to hit us back at uh, with us at, uh, the email address again is curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. And we've got a Twitter account at curmudgeonpod and uh, we're very excited about this. It's off to a great start. We've got our Curmudgeon Rock Report Curmudgeonly community on Facebook. We're at 55 members, and we've had lots of engagement. So thank you, uh, all of you members of the community. Uh, we're very excited to be in there and engaging you in the way that you love to be engaged, but don't get engaged enough the way that you used to when we were kids. 